musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is a bassist from Central Pennsylvania. He is one Jamie Aston, and you can find him teaming up with Wes Hoke and the Bear Roots Band, as well as the Joe Olnick Band. I'm, I'm uh, going to drop a couple of links in the show notes for you to hopefully get into these projects. For our conversation today, we'll be discussing an iconic improvisational band from Bur- uh, Burlington, Vermont. Of course, I am talking about Fish. You never know what you're going to get with Fish. Sometimes you might get the funk. It's reggae, prog rock, psychedelic rock, jazz, blues, you name it. Fish incorporates all of those elements into their music. We're really going to be discussing a 1994 record, the fifth studio offering from Fish entitled Hoist. But before we start talking about Hoist, I think it would be appropriate to introduce our guest, Jamie. It's great to have you. Thanks for making some time to be on Cover to Cover today. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. This is this is going to be fun, I think. I think so, too. So, uh, we're going to be talking about Hoist, their uh, Fish's fifth studio album. Um, came out in March 1994. Many people kind of consider this, you know, period of Fish's history sort of a golden age, especially from a live point of view. Um, but I really want to hear what you think about the record, about the band as a whole. Um, how did you discover the band? Were you there kind of at the very beginning? Did you get turned on to, to Hoist, and was that your entree into their music? How did a uh, how did the uh, the Fish experience begin for you? So Hoist was interesting. Uh, I had some friends that were into live music, and obviously I'd been through The Grateful Dead. I'd been through some other things. Uh, They fed me things like Widespread Panic and um, a few other bands that I was kind of starting to get into, and I was really into that folk rock, jazz-oriented sort of just improvisational jam. I had been playing with some reggae bands around the area, touring a little bit with them, and uh, luckily enough for me a friend of mine knew a guy who owned a record store in Lancaster Pennsylvania called XYZ Music which I think is now defunct but the owner Paul down there had a deal one night where you could come in I think it was 40 bucks you got the album you got an 8x10 promo poster and a ticket to the man in July of 1994 uh, the, the second night of the man that year and I had never seen fish live I had no idea what I was getting into I'd heard some live music but um went in there had a midnight release on hoist bought the album took it home listened to it and i was just blown away from cover to like actually cover to cover <laughs> no pun intended but yeah, just from start to finish on that album i was just uh, completely enamored with everything i heard uh then came along the live show and that was my first live show the second night of the man in 1994 with fish anyway and i just i was absolutely blown away with what i had seen what i heard and i was i was I was in deep. So at that point I went on tour. I was, I was taping, um, traveling all over the U S and it's, it's still going today. I mean, we just were up in New York for, uh, the last couple of shows. Uh, we skipped AC, which was fine, but, uh, yeah, I've just been enamored with them for years. Uh, I just like the style of music. Like you said, you can get prog rock, you can get reggae, you can get jazz, you can get funk. It, it's all up in the air and you never quite know what you're going to get. I love that. Friends, we're talking with Jamie Aston here on Cover to Cover about Fish's fifth studio record called Hoist. Uh, Jamie, interesting that you mentioned, you know, July 94 and seeing them at the Man Center because so many of these particular songs off of Hoist, they never really saw the light of day. Maybe one or two kind of appeared in the overall, you know, live catalog, you know, around 93, but they right. really just 
they kind of kept these songs, you know, to themselves a secret, you know, up until that tour, right? Right. Um, I think in that year in um, Madison Square Garden, we actually heard uh, the the outro to Down With Disease and everybody was like, what is going on here? Because they really hadn't, I hadn't heard it live really. Um, and most of the stuff we heard in 94 wasn't off the album. We heard some stuff, but the majority of the music they were playing was from Rift, from Junta, all the classics that everybody now holds up there as like their, their genre standards. Um, but yeah, it was, it just blew me away. The, the, the ability of that album to cover so many different sounds and all the, the different guests that are on it and uh, the, the clarity and the, the professionalism of the recording, as well as having a little bit of that live music interjected into one song on the album, just so you can hear what they do live. So you get an idea, but you like, again, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. You're talking about production, you know, and th- Absolutely. At, this mom- at this moment in time, they were signed to Electra records. Mm-hmm. Um, had a really great relationship with them. The record was uh, produced by Paul Fox. Uh, it was recorded and mixed by Ed Thacker. Um, I, I just find that generally interesting because Fish has been so much about kind of creative control, you know, mm-hmm. both in a live setting as well in the studio. They kind of, you know, handed over the reins, at least on this particular record. And were a I think more they collaborative had, they, that way. Right. And they had hit that point in their their existence that they were just a little too big to be doing what they had been doing. And I think some of the studio executives found them and said, look, we need, you know, we need to get these guys out there because they're, they'll say it themselves. Like they're the biggest band you've never heard of. And um, they just kind of got pushed in with Electra and got on this record out and just everything that they did came together and they had the resources available to them to get the guests they wanted to get the people they wanted to play on that album and make it sound exactly like they wanted it to sound. I mean, they went from a few albums before that where they're bringing in kids and having people sing in the background because that's what they could afford. And they're working with an eight track or a 12 track, 16 track recording. And now they're just opened up this complete studio experience that they just maybe didn't never, they never really had the option to use before. And they, they absolutely went, went to, the, the end of the earth with it. So it was amazing. This is a great segue to talk about the various guests on this particular record. Bela Fleck, for starters. Right. right. Bela Fleck and Fleck Tones. Unreal. Victor Wooten. Allison Krauss. Mm-hmm. A rare, really new name at this point in time in the mid-90s. Right. Really before Union Station exploded, I believe. Absolutely. And she was one of those people that I'd heard the name. It was getting like bandied about because, like I said, I was listening to folk rock and Grateful Dead. And people were like, you need to also check out Allison Krauss, what she's doing, even her solo stuff, just her playing on her own. And I was like, I'd never heard of this person. And all of a sudden, there she is on this Fish album. And I was like, wow, this is a- okay. I get it. I get it. The voice is amazing. She can play. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. We also got to mention uh, the Tower of Power makes an appearance <laughs> from the get go. I mean, yeah. they really—I mean, they really were all in yeah. in terms yeah, of just incredible guests and collaborations on this record. Uh, I think uh, even Rose Stone from Sly and the Family Stone makes absolutely an appearance too. Yep, so. uh, Jonathan Frakis on uh, Riker's Mailbox coming out of like Star Trek. Like, what, what's going on here? They absolutely walked into Electra and said, "Who can we get? What can we do? This is what we'd like to do. Is this possible?" Absolutely. It's all on the table. Go ahead, do it. So, yeah. It's amazing what labels could, you know, do at that time and just Absolutely. getting people, you know, around the same room. <laughs> Super cool. Friends, we're talking with Jamie Aston here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, all things fish, all things hoist, jumping around a little bit, but this now feels like a fantastic time to talk about, Jamie, your favorite tracks. We can literally do as the program suggests and go cover to cover, or if you just want to pick out, I don't know, a half a dozen, I'll be. I'd love to be guided by you and, and see where everything takes us. I, I 
for me, it's very difficult to pick a couple, like favorite tracks on this album only because from the beginning, uh, they jump out into Ju- Julius with that whole almost like gospel rock kind of feel. And then they're segueing into, um, you know, solo guitar, acoustic guitar and one voice, you know, very simple music. And then it's into the funk. It's into like, it's into jazz. It's a little bit of this, that, and the other thing. And then you hit demand at the end. That seems pretty simple. And then it finishes out with a live track, like right from one of the shows that was one of the few times they'd ever done that on a recording. So from the beginning, I would say, I mean, Julius is amazing. All the singing in the background, um, having that gospel sound, uh, right off the bat, it really picks it, like really kicks in and just sets the tone for this whole thing until you hit the second track and everything changes again. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, do you ever listen to any kind of radio teleplays or anything like that where there's kind of a, you know, it sort of sets the scene that a private eye is about ready to embark on solving a case. Right. When I heard those lyrics for the first time, <laughs> danger I was told to expect this. I began right. my descent on the cold granite steps. Like, that's a cool scene setter. Right. Absolutely. The the writing and everything at this point in time, I mean, there's the writing is still top notch. Like it's always fun. And people will say, well, their, their music doesn't make any sense. There's just a bunch of noise and a bunch of random lyrics. But at that point they had hit a, they had hit a pretty solid stride with what they were doing and who they were writing with and the collaborative efforts of the people that are on the back end of helping Trey write these songs. Just, I mean, some of it may be mindless, it may be silly, but then there's words like that that just immediately set a completely different tone for this band and what they're doing. And it just locks into the snare too. Yep, know. absolutely. Um, I, I was listening. I was actually listening to this on the way home. We were we were down in West Virginia over the weekend, and I was just listening to it on the way here uh, this afternoon. And it, even my wife and I we were both listening, just saying like, "Wow, I, I, you know, it's we, it's been so long since I've heard some of these songs." But some of them are still in rotation, like Axilla, they've just been playing recently. So it's it's one of those things like you never know what you're going to get. But um, but you're right, like everything just locks right in and the sound, everything is so well produced. The playing is so clean and everything just sounds great on the album. So, uh, yeah, there's I, there's not one track on there. That I could say, oh, this is my favorite or that's my favorite. As soon as I say that, then I think of something else like I'm like, oh, yeah, Julius is great. Then I'm like, oh, well, Down With Disease is on there. And then I'm like, oh, well, wait, we can do, you know, like th- 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 there's just they're all amazing. So, yeah. You brought up something about Axela. So in, in the overall track listing, this is Axela part two for anybody who is blissfully unfamiliar with this part of Fish's catalog <laughs> or Fish in general. Right. From a, from a live point of view. So there are, there are two iterations of this. They've preferred to play the part one with di- completely different lyrics. And I believe it wasn't until maybe two or three years ago that they kind of reintroduced part two. Right into the live repertoire. Is that, am I remembering this it, right? It absolutely disappeared for the longest time. And everybody was very, like back in the 90s when I was taping, like it would pop up periodically. And everybody's like, oh, this is great. And then it was just gone. And I would say in the last two or three years, um, it started to come up, come back once in a while. You might hear it if you're really lucky. And I mean, on this past summer tour, I think they've done it at least twice, possibly three times, where they came in with the whole, the whole audio portion of it where like trey's talking on the microphone like the whole back end of that where he's just like hey man turn that light off uh, get the light out of my face and like it's just it's just crazy <laughs> i love how they kind of on the on the studio version of axel part two they kind of slow down trey's voice uh-huh. yeah i don't know if it was an effect or if you know there was some kind of uh i don't know psychedelics involved possibly yeah who knows yeah <laughs> it's hard to say with those guys i mean it could have well been just a studio trick but i mean you never know 
Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> Friends, we're talking with J.B. Aston here on Cover to Cover about Hoist, the uh, fifth studio offering from Fish. So we've touched on Down with Disease. We've talked a little bit about Julius. Then kind of things cool off from a sonic point of view. I believe uh, we go into If I Could, and we mentioned Alison Krauss being a debut yes. vocalist on this one. What did you think about you know this particular track? It, it felt like a, a really great departure you know, based on their previous studio records. and having that sort of collaboration come into the fray. Right. And like I said, there's, there's so much crazy music and people call it silly and there's the lyrics don't make sense. And then this album, like you said, right off the bat, Julius kicks in and it's, it's really driving. It's really solid. The the lyrics are interesting. Uh, Down with diseases there, Wolfman's brothers there, but then like this, it's just this nice little acoustic piece right smack in the middle with Alison Krauss. Like the vocals are amazing. The harmonies are great. The, the, the songwriting is really well done. And, it allows Trey and and Allison to both just do their thing and sound fantastic doing it. And I mean, they 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 absolutely ran with everything they could with this record, which is amazing. Yeah, I I was wondering. Uh, yeah, I've been you know I've been familiar with Fish like yourself, you know, for quite a while. But it had been you know probably several years since I really dug into Hoist and just thinking about the chronology of all of these records. Like I wonder if this song, as well as Life Boy, which we could talk mm-hmm. about in a little bit, I wonder if those two particular songs were kind of a forerunner of what they wanted to do later with Bob Ezrin and Billy Breeze, just being a little bit more song, you know, lyrical, mm-hmm. lyrically oriented. Right. And it, like I said, they everything up to this point had just been chaotic. And all of a sudden it was like Trey had this voice that he's always wanted to have out there and things were changing a little bit for him. He's starting to see a different light in that tunnel. And I think he just started to evolve into this other type of songwriter that wasn't just, I mean, he's always written songs. And if you listen to him speak, he talks about how even when he was a kid, he was always writing songs in his head and some of them didn't make sense. And that's just what he does. But in this instance, he could actually sit and really like build this song. And then he's like, you know, who, who would possibly compliment what I'm doing to the point where I can feel right that this song is where I want it to be calls an Alison Krauss and just the songwriting, everything is just beautiful. And um, I think, like you said, he, like even in the Billy breeze and a few of the other songs that they evolved into beyond that um, he just had that chance to really, like really open up and do something totally different than what they had been doing and really get it recorded and played out well. I wonder how that resonated, you know, with the fans, just generally speaking, like, oh, we're, we've kind of stripped away the chaos right here. But then all of a sudden, there's about 40 to 45 seconds of pure <laughs> unadulterated chaos yeah. with Rikers Mailbox. Which, right, absolutely. I mean, I'm assuming they're referring to Rikers Island, right? The uh, well, correctional well, facility. No, uh, Riker from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, the second in command of the Enterprise. Uh, Jonathan Frakis is the trombone player on that part. Of course. So, <laughs> and I mean, this is, obviously, this is what music does, right? It's because <laughs> that's a, that's the last person. You never know how you're going to interpret this. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, it could be anything, but I mean, it's just one of those things. Like, I mean, I don't know how that could even have possibly occur. Like, it's not. I can't imagine they put a call out and said, you know, we really need Jonathan Frakis on this album, or was it just like he happened to be in the area? He was in the studio for something else. I, I don't know, but he just ends up being in there playing trombone on the fish song, like. Okay, sounds good. We're going to put 45 seconds in here with you. Just go ahead and do your thing. Just and right it's amazing. Right time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So friends in an adjacent studio or something like, oh, I'll just pop yeah, right. over here and hey, cut wait, my is that, is that really him? Great. Do you have your trombone with you? Fantastic. Bring it on over. We got something we're going to do quick. 
Yes. I mean, that'd be, I mean, having that kind of flexibility and having the lecture behind you doing that and like allowing it to happen is just amazing. After Riker's mailbox, uh, we talked about Axilla part two, mm-hmm. really exciting track kind of continues, you know, the same sort of vibe, same sort of chaotic feel that you get from right. Riker's mailbox. Yep. Then we slow things down again and we have life boy. What, yeah. What's, does anything speak to you about that track? Uh, life boy. I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into when I got this album. Like I had heard some things that friends of mine put on maybe the tail end to fill out like a, a tape they gave me or like a CD or something where, um, it was just a couple of like one track from a, a live fish show. So I, I'd listened to it, but I never really internalized it. And then, I mean, I was, I was all excited. I was all about the funk and the, and the, the, the psychedelic crazy jazz jams. But then, um, this song just, again, comes right back to just, it's just basically Trey and his guitar. I can picture him just sitting in his room playing this, you know, and it was one of those songs, like everything's put together so well, the message, there's obviously you can get whatever you want out of it, but he has these messages in there that he's just like, he's basically just laying it all out for people. Like, this is where I stand. This is where I'm at. And, and then the playing is beautiful. The vo- like the vocals, everything's just produced really well. It's just such a well put together album. And that, that track in particular is just super clean and just, it's beautiful. Absolutely. I, I wonder, um, I've always wondered lyrically if there's some sort of, uh, I don't know, connection between Down With Disease and Life Boy in the sense of <laughs> things are getting really, really big for the band. How do we internalize this? How do we make sense of this? How do we stay together as a group? Anything I've you know read about Down With Disease kind of suggests that, oh my gosh, this band was you know almost on the brink of just calling it a day because things right. were just getting way too out of hand, way too out of control. Um, I wonder if this was just another sort of like expression of you know trying to figure out how do we make sense of all of this, and you know the, how how do you have the ability to slow down when things are going so great and your dreams are coming true? Right. I know that sounds kind of corny, but I mean. Yeah, yeah. Up to this point, they had been playing um, smaller venues, and the relationship between audience and band is ever anything you want. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, like, up to this point, it was you know they're playing small places. Like, um, I mean, I had tickets to see them at the Chameleon back in the early '90s, and I didn't go because I was like, I never heard of this band. I don't know who they are. And so they were playing small rooms like that, and then all of a sudden, it's like they're at the Man, they're at Merriweather, they're at like in in Camden, and and things start getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster. They're picking things up and. Um, I'm, I almost think they're, like you said, they're at a point where it's a tipping point. Like, what do we do here? Like we're, we either have to really commit and really go forward with this. And we're like, we're really diving in all, all in, or do we pull back? Like, where do we stand? So I think it was them just kind of trying to get a grip on everything and seeing where they were going from here. I'm sure they were excited about it, but I mean, you could hear even in the music in the late, like mid to late nineties, it was just getting chaotic. And then eventually they kind of just disappeared for a while said they called it a day but then came back so um i'm glad they did but they definitely ironed out a few things and really got their heads in the right places and moved forward with it after life boy we step into sample in a jar Mm -hmm. also lyrically getting into some chaos too and the feeling of just you know craving isolation right Um, but knowing that you're you're you're, you're in the mix but you just want to be alone for a minute but you you're yeah. still there and you, you want to be on top, but you don't really want to be there. And you're not sure if that's where you should be. And it just seems like everybody really seems like a trade, especially it was kind of, it just seemed like he was confused. He's like, do I, 
like, I, I mean, this is getting nuts and it's getting big and people are really interested in what we're doing. Is this where I want to be or should I pull back? Like, I know I, I said I want to be there, but, and the band says they want to be there, but do we really want this? And I think that this whole album is that whole push and pull of where they need to be, what they wanted to do. And it's, it all comes through. Friends, we are speaking with a bassist. His name is Jamie Aston here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarkov. You can find him online, um, plays with Wes Hoke, plays with Joe Ulnick. Um, like I said, I'll be dropping some links into the show notes, you know, when our episode is released and published. Um, Jamie, after sampling a jar, what is next on our track listing? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I don't know anything in order. I think it's Wolfman's brother. Is it Wolfman's? Uh, I, think, okay. I think that is track eight. Yeah. yeah. So what? Yeah. What say you about Wolfman's brother? Wolfman's, I just love. So I I was sold when, uh, like I said, a friend of mine gave me an old widespread panic album and let me listen to that. And I was sold on the sound of that bass. I had been playing some different stuff up to that point. So I I went out on the limb. I ordered uh, a modulus guitar, a modulus five string quantum. And then I found out Mike Gordon also played it and listened to him. I was like, man, I love that sound. Like it sounds great in the mix. And then I heard this song and like hearing it on the album and then hearing it again, like live when he was actually out playing it. Although at the time he was still playing like a, a hand built bass by Paul Languedoc, their sound man. But um, he was flipping back and forth between the two, but that, that particular bass and that sound, like just that line when he comes in, that funky, that funky sort of walking line, it's just it's just repetitive and almost just puts you in this trance. And then there's all these great harmonies and the, the whole song's just amazing. And now it's become one of those songs that has the potential to be like the, the pinnacle of any given show. And they can really open it up and really just that can be the 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 setting for any show to like just everybody be like, that's the song that that set the tone and that's where we're at. And it's just amazing. Like I, I love this whole album, but Wolfman's is probably my favorite on the album. Except, yeah, you know, there's some little tidbits here and there, but yeah, Wolfman's is one of my one of my favorites. Absolutely. For some reason, like obviously these two bands are very different, right? Aesthetic, or you know, from an ethos point of view, the Grateful Dead and, and Fish, you know, try to sort of conquer the same things, in my opinion. In having that, you know having that deep connection with the audience. I've, I've mm-hmm. wondered if Wolfman's brother, you know, the way that they kind of extend that song is kind of like the Grateful Dead's Shakedown Street in some respects. Always sounds a little different every time live. Right. And the, I mean, the, the album or the album version is great and it's super clean. And when they play it live, they can really almost replicate that when they first start the song and they really lay down each chorus or each verse. And it sounds right where it should be. But then there's the potential, just like any one of their songs, really. But and Wolfman's in particular, potential gets for them to just open it up and become this funky masterpiece is just it's there, it's available to them. And then the outro where they're they're singing these rounds and they're they're singing in weird harmonies and just all they're all over the place, just random lyrics. It's it's all there and it shows up in the live music as well. Like that can change at any time. You never know what you're going to get. It could be drawn out. It could go into a vocal jam. It could go into nothing. You never know. But it it's the the paperwork is there. It's just a question of what power they're going to use. On this particular track, Tower of Power mm-hmm. makes a guest appearance, <laughs> just like Julius. I wonder if Wolfman's brother too was kind of the uh, you know an entree in some ways into a lot of vocal jams, especially you know things that you heard you know beginning in the mid '90s. If like Wolfman Wolfman's brother was kind of a launching point for for that idea. 
Right. And it might have, it very well could have been. And then now they're, they're doing it and, uh, you enjoy myself and a few other songs where they bring them out. And there's, like you said, in the mid to late nineties, the, the vocal jams got crazy. Um, and they would go on, there's some recordings. If you listen 10, 12, 14 minutes where they're just doing a vocal jam on stage and people, if you don't know what you're getting into and you walk into that state, like into that show and you heard this, you'd be like, I, I'm never coming back to see this is a mess or you're just completely blown away. And you're like, I'm sold. This is what I want to do. So, yeah. I think I'm in the latter camp most nights. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So, so after uh, Wolfman's brother, we uh take it to track 9, mm-hmm. Son of a Mule. Yeah. Bale of Fleck. Uh this one uh, this was one of the ones that when I heard on the album it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um it kind of put me in the mindset of either a bluegrass or like a folk rock kind of thing, but then uh you can tell right away that things are, they always have the potential to go off the rails. So when Mike's singing, you can hear that the vocals don't quite line up with the way the rhythm's going. And then all of a sudden everything just meshes and then it goes apart and it meshes again. So there's always this push and pull, but it's never out of place. It always sounds great. And again, the, the lyrics, I mean, you're talking about some, some person living on a farm or somewhere out in the country and there's aliens and laser beams and a, a mule and it just of course they come in for some tea and obviously it all makes sense in the long run i guess but uh again one of those songs that live can just turn into this 25 minute jam fest and you just don't know what you're going to get till you get there it could be quick and efficient it could be long and drawn out you never know yeah after uh, <laughs> after son of a mule and all of that beautiful chaos we slow things down again similar to mm-hmm. light boy and if i could with dog face boy right um, i, I this is a personal favorite of mine on this track it's among many. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great song. Uh, again, it, it lays back and it's just like, I think it's, it's Trey being introspective for a moment and just sitting down and really getting to write a song that the band's really never addressed at that up to that point. It's always been like rock or funk or whatever they're doing. And it's always been high energy or and there's a couple that stray from that normal thing, but this album specifically puts out all that sort of acoustic sound that Trey is doing, but not really bringing to the band and allowing it to just kind of breathe a little bit and let the band get involved and just kind of put it out there so people can hear it. And now you'll start to see more of that as, as the band got older and they started to change a little bit on the way they're way, the way they're looking at writing songs. You're seeing that a lot of these songs that Trey was writing at the time really still fit the bill and he's still pushing songs in that direction. And it's just a matter of what he feels like putting out there in front of us. I, I, I would love to just sit down and just see all of the songs that he's never let us hear that all sound in that same vein. And it, I just, I love it. It's all, it's, it's all interesting to me. And I, I just love to hear him play. So, yeah, me too. And I just, I, you know, to jump off of hoist for a second, Sigma Oasis has a lot of these you know, sort of confessional elements in the lyrics right. too. Absolutely. And that's, uh, I was I'm actually having a hard time. Like I, this album basically set the tone for me with fish and put me on this ride that is still going. And um, Sigma Oasis, when that album came out, I honestly think that's probably in my eyes, anyway, the most well-rounded, most well put together album fish has done um, just start to finish. Every song is great. The production is great, but they're at a point where they've really locked in their sound and they know what they want to do. And, and they're so good at putting it down in the studio. And um, I think hoist was early on, probably the best thing they could have done at the time. They were super happy with it. And now it's just, 
it's I, I I almost expect the Sigma Oasis sound, but with Hoist, it was this whole other thing that came out of nowhere, and I was like, okay, I yeah, this is my thing. Speaking of things coming out of nowhere, and just this band in general, just constantly keeping its fans guessing. Sigma Oasis, which is the you know the most current studio record, I believe, came out on April Fool's Day, right, two thousand and twenty-one. So. Right. Yeah, smack in the middle of a pandemic when everybody's like, wait, what's going on? There's a new album. What are you talking about? How does that happen? Yeah. And we're going to live stream this with some yeah. kind of video component. Yep, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, why not? Because you're fishing. You can do that. It's, and you have a fan base that's willing to sit and do and watch that where a lot of bands today, I think if you don't have like music changing every three and a half minutes or you're not entertaining them with the videos or you're not entertaining them with this, it's like you start to lose them. But these guys, I mean, that that album comes out, like everybody wants to sit and just listen to it the whole way through. There's no question. People are already in a this zone where like there's no live music, there's nothing going on, and here comes Fish with like, oh, here you go, have this album, you know. <laughs> Fred, we're talking with Jamie Aston here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. All things Fish. We're talking about Hoist. We're jumping around to Sigma Oasis here. Um, mm-hmm. head, let's head back and uh, talk about Hoist um, after Dogface Boy. We have track eleven, and it's called "Demand." What um, what what do you think about this track? It's uh, it's very kind of inside baseball in, in a lot of respects. Be- uh, you know, and I say it that way because you have this you know component of a of a brand new song in "Demand," but then there you know there's some special effects where somebody gets into a car, starts mm-hmm. you know, starts the engine, and all of a sudden it's taking you into this weird place, you know of a song that is a fish song that was recorded several years before that mm-hmm. for another record called lawn boy. Let's kind of like talk a little bit about like the concept of demand and then getting in that car and listening to the live experience of fish in right. 1994. Right. So uh, demand was interesting. Cause again, it comes out with this really nice melodic um, sort of harmonizing simple song. And, and if you listen to the lyrics, they don't really, they're not telling you at all where you're going to end up in this whole menagerie, but um, it's again, really nice songwriting, very simple and easy. And like you said, it just kind of dies out. And then you hear this person get in and start a car up, put a tape in a tape deck, which I'm sure there's people out there that will hear this and be like, wait, what's a tape deck and why are we listening to it on a tape? But um, you put this tape in and you hear the guy like close the door, start the car or girl or whoever it is. And they start driving away and you, and right from the get-go, it's it it fades in from like a radio sound to this music, and they start cranking it up, and you can tell it's like it's just jamming right along. And as it's you can it, it, that's that particular song split open a melt. It's a jam section of split open a melt, and that's one of the songs that like if I can see it live, that's one of my favorites, only because there is that potential for it to just go completely off the rails. And in this particular song, um, in demand. The section they chose, it starts out pretty, pretty standard for their entry to their jam. And then it starts to get a little weirder and a little bit weirder and a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more just chaotic. Like there's sounds coming from all over the place. There's some looping going on and it just keeps, it keeps building and building. And as they're doing that, they're, they're also mixing in those sounds of that car squealing around, the engines revving, like things get nuts. And eventually it just, it ends like the song normally ends with a very abrupt ending which also results in a car crash, which, I mean, the first time I heard it, I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I, I was just like, what is going, what, who record, what is happening right now? So, um, and then the more I listened to Fish, the more I started to understand that like, 
that song really is how things are. Demand, it might start out very mellow at a show. It could start out wild. It could start out rock. But eventually, at some point, there's that potential for that whole show to just go completely off the rails. And they're, they're taking you with them. So, yeah, I, I love uh, Demand is probably, I mean, I love that Wolfman's so well done. But Demand was the first time I really heard Fish live, quote unquote, on a recorded studio album from one of their records, like one of their recordings of a live show. And it just, it blew me away. I was, I was sold. Absolutely. Friends, we're talking with Jamie. <laughs> it's just so well said. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're talking about Fish and, and Hoist, the fifth studio offering on uh, Electra Records. Um, huh, Jamie, I think I would like to uh, close up our conversation sure. with a discussion about cover art. Yes. Uh, so as we both know, we live in this fast paced, incredibly fast paced world. The one kind of pervasive element that happens, you know, luckily with all recorded music is some form of cover art where it, whether it's a painting, drawing piece of digital graphic art, something exists to let you know that there is some kind of a new project that an artist is wanting right. to showcase to the world. When you look at this piece of cover art for, <laughs> for, for hoist. Yeah. What do you make of this? What, what, um, what kinds of just, what, what's on the yeah. palette here? What speaks to you? So it was one of those things. So like I said, we went there for a midnight release of the album. And when we bought it, we bought it as a package deal. We got the little 8x10. And I got the 8x10, the same 8x10 they have up at uh, at the Chameleon Club where, you know, Fishman's wearing his dress. He has these big goggles on, a crazy, like, like flight cap. And, like, everybody just looks a little wacky. And I'm like, who, like, who are these guys? And then they hand over my disc and I'm looking at that cover art, looking at this fish or like this fish cover art, this album, with this hoist, this, this horse, I'm like, what is like, uh, like, what am I getting into here? And I had been listening to like the Grateful Dead. And like I said, I did understand folk music and folk rock. So I was like, well, maybe it's like a folk rock album. I don't know. I have no idea. And I took it home and I walked, I like, I remember walking out of the store and looking at my buddy and I'm just like, dude, what, what did we just buy? You know, as, as he's like, I don't know. We're going to find out together, you know? So we, I remember sitting down and paging through the liner notes and everything else on it and just listening to the album. And I still don't understand why there's a horse on a horse on the front of hoist other than the fact that it's a giant horse lift. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get it, but I I'm sure there's some inside joke or somewhere in one of the band members' minds, it made absolute sense. I was I like, of all the things they could have picked. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's a relation to Amy, their friend Amy. Oh, the farm, those, yeah. Those, yeah, I wonder if this is one of Amy's horses. It might be. I don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. I never bothered digging deep enough to find out. But um, yeah, I was, <laughs> again, like I'm looking at the whole thing. Everything about it was just like, it was exactly... I didn't have any idea what I was getting into, but it was exactly what it was supposed to be for what I was getting. So it was like a little chaotic, a little weird, these crazy looking guys, and then a ticket to a show. And that's, that's where I was. A totally natural and organic kind of experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Discovering music and discovering right. a band. Right. Absolutely. And that's yeah, I, I'd never take it back. Like that was, I mean, that was actually formative for me from what I was doing to where I am now. Like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just out of curiosity, I mean, how much um, how much has Mike Gordon inspired you as a bass player? Oh my gosh! You know, along with playing a modulus, um, what is, does has it changed your approach in any way? Shape, form? it it does. Um, he takes so his one of his huge, huge, uh, I guess, inspirations 
uh, one of the people that inspires him is Phil Lesh. And I'd already been listening to Phil with the Grateful Dead. And both of them approach music in kind of a similar fashion in that instead of just trying to lay down a, a bass line that just fits with the drums, it is what it is, they play with almost like a counterpoint melody. So when they play, they play in a way that um, they're complementing the melody or they're complementing the rhythm and they're trying to find a way to fit in between the spaces but still hold down the entire sound of that song. Uh, almost a lot like uh, um, classical music approaches the sound. Uh, there's a lot of pieces going on, but everybody's they're playing this contrapuntal or like a contrapoint sound on the albums and, and live and everything else where they just kind of fade into a space where everybody's doing their own thing, but it all meshes so well. And it, it just it brings forth that whole idea of the jam band and the, the jam rock sound in that you have to listen to the other players. You have to see your place in the mix and, and fill that space without overdoing it. And like, I, I, that's something you'll never learn. You'll always, you'll still be learning no matter how long you play, but absolutely. Yeah. He's one of my favorite players. Jamie Aston of bassist from uh, West Hoke and the bear roots, as well as uh, uh, a collaborative uh, musician with Joe Ulnick. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective on fish. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Absolutely. This has been fun. <laughs> cool. It's funny because most people when I talk about fish just are like, okay, yeah, that's great. Go away. But you're actually asking about it. So <laughs> you, you dug the hole. I'll just fill it. That's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much, Davey. This has been so yeah, absolutely. much fun. Yep. Thank you for having me. This is great. All right. Thanks so much to all of you for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, Thank you very much, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether that's on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or maybe even Amazon. Take a moment to tell a friend or tell some of your family members about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That will certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover. <laughs>